0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the other people podcast is now available for streaming on Spotify. If you like Spotify, if you're a Spotify person, you can listen to other people on Spotify. You can stream it right there. This show is offered freely more than 500 episodes and counting it is listener supported there's a free app everything's free so if you would like to support the other people podcast you can do so at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod okay thank you you are not alone you have
1: found other people you and I have a friend in
0: common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's
1: really
0: beautiful. Jake, did what? A struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know. It's like your head exploded, seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one person at just one time. Oh, hey, everybody, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, Welcome right. to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm standing here in Los Angeles, California. It's a beautiful day, and I'm very excited to have El Nash on the program. Uh, she is the author of a novel called Animals Eat Each Other. It is the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. Uh, TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine, and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. If you want to know more, go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. So a conversation with Elle Mash coming up in just a bit. Her book, once again, is called Animals Eat Each Other, out there now from DeZank Books. Uh, I do want to read some mail. I've been getting some good mail. A listener named Dave writes, Yo, Brad. The reason I feel the need to shoot this email is to comment on your latest pod with Shauna Barbosa. Uh, My wife has been working in hospice and grief counseling with children for 16 years, music therapy, etc. We have issues just like anyone else, but I can assure you we are not afraid of death and dying. And although the work can be demanding, it is not overwhelming. Yes, she's amazing. Great mind, deep heart, good soul. And I've been working as a juvenile probation officer in Philadelphia for 20 years. Never boring. And always interesting, fucking A, signed Dave. Thanks for writing, Dave. And, uh, you know, just to give you guys some context, Shauna Barbosa and I talked in, I believe, episode 512 a couple of weeks ago. And in the flow of the conversation, we somehow landed upon hospice work. Started talking about that, how it was like a noble profession. And we started to imagine it out loud, what it would be like to confront death and dying every day. I would probably have to soften your fear of death and dying. And it seems like that's the case, according to Dave. And it seems logical too. Like it would be weird if you're working as a hospice uh, person and your fear of death is escalating with every passing day. That would become unbearable. It would certainly be an indicator that you had chosen the wrong profession. So uh, it makes sense and seems healthy. As does working as a probationer, you know, a juvenile probation officer. Two noble professions. I got to say, Dave, you guys sound like really good people, and it sounds like a great love story unfolding in Philadelphia. I mean that sincerely. I appreciate you listening, and I wish you well. A listener named James writes, Hey, Brad, my name is James, and I'm emailing the Brad Listy who existed back in 2011. I'm working my way forward through your podcast starting at episode one. At one of the episodes in the 30s, you said, quote, Life is a never-ending process of realizing what an asshole you were three years ago. That really got me thinking about how people change. I just finished episode 50, so I've listened to you talk for more than 50 hours. I feel like I really know you, or at least the you that makes up your online persona. But I know the 2011 Brad. I have no idea what 2018 Brad is like, although I guess I will in 450 hours. I hope 2018 Brad still checks his emails. I follow you on Twitter, but I admit that when I check on your feed, I feel like I'm cheating on 2011 Brad. I want to avoid spoilers. I'll read your updates more consistently once I finish the podcast. Signed, James. So this is actually interesting to me. I'm fascinated by the idea of somebody listening chronologically and getting like a complete uh, experience of the podcast in a relatively compressed time frame. It sounds, James, like you are listening at a relatively rapid clip. Uh, A couple of things occur to me. First of all, There is my recurring fear of repetition, the fact that I repeat myself, the fact that I only have like a finite number of stories or stories that stick in my head and that I wind up telling people in conversation, like hiking the Appalachian Trail, you'll get to that. You'll come to understand that. I worry about that being a wearying factor, but I feel like it's a very human thing. Everybody's sort of got their little like, uh, you know, quiver full of arrows or quiver full of stories, and they come out inevitably in monologues and in conversations. The other thing I I wonder about uh with some degree of humor is like what's the what's the threshold for when you start to get sick of a podcaster? Because I feel like this happens, like I've experienced this as a listener where I really like a show, I'm into a show, but at some point you start to just tire out and you're like I need a palate cleanse. I got to go listen to another show. I need another voice in my head. Then I'll come back to this later. So James, I guess my question for you is you know, are you going to listen straight through in a compressed time frame? Or are you going to just like listen to it in fifty you know fifty episode chunks and then turn to something else? Is there a number of episodes at which listening to me becomes unbearable? And uh, lastly, I will just say that it's interesting that James has sent me this email and that he's only at episode fifty. I did not write back to him. I'm simply responding to him now on the show, and I think I'm going to refrain from writing back to him so that as he listens. And he eventually gets to this episode, he will hear this and realize that I actually did respond. It'll be like a little uh, gift to him as he gets to the 500s eventually. (laughs) Uh, So good luck, James. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, let me hear from you when you're done, especially if you get done, you know, relatively quickly. I'd be very fascinated to get an email or read a blog post about somebody who has ingested the totality of this show. What is that experience like? What, what does it, you know, what does it do to a person? What do you learn? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Elle Nash. Her novel is called Animals Eat Each Other. Very pleased to get to shine a light on this novel. It's a terrific book and it is the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, available now from DeZank Books, one of our finest independent presses. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Elle Mash.
1: I was born in North Yorkshire, England, in Harrogate, Um, but my parents, my dad's American, my mom's British, and um, my parents moved to Augusta, Georgia, when I was like two years old. And so I spent a lot of my childhood there until I was about, I think 9, between 9, it's like, I don't remember, between 9 and 11. And then that's when we moved to Colorado Springs.
0: Okay. So Colorado yeah. Springs, beautiful place, Garden of the Gods, very religious.
1: Yes. I know. It's so funny. Everyone um, everyone always talks about how beautiful Colorado Springs is, and it is, unless you grow up there. And then it's like, I feel like to me, it's the most annoying like little town in the world. It is really religious, and from when I was living there, people didn't really like paying their taxes. There were always like potholes and like um, infrastructure problems. Like streetlights couldn't be kept on because people like weren't paying taxes and stuff. It's pretty crazy. And the air force, but, the
0: air force academy is there too.
1: Yeah, there's like five military bases around Colorado Springs, um, and like they're. I don't know if it's still this way just cause I haven't lived there in a while, but there was like a really huge, like income disparity there too. Like the North end of town was like really wealthy and really developed and the South end of town was just kind of like getting ignored and stuff too. So
0: where, where did you live?
1: Um, I lived on the South end of town. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So what were you, were your parents uh, religious people? Did you have siblings? Like what was it? What's the story?
1: Um, I'm an only child, and I wouldn't say that my parents are super religious. They, um, I mean, I went to Sunday school a few times, and when, um, I was growing up, my dad always made me watch, like, Jesus movies and stuff on Christmas, um, and, like, he was, like, really into the Left Behind series and stuff like that, but it was never something that was, like, forced on me. I think when I was, like, 13... Um, I told my dad I didn't believe in God anymore, and he got really upset. But then it was, like, not an issue after that. Wow. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, like, why. I'm trying to remember why exactly. He never, like, forced me to try and, like, think one way or the other. I think it just, like, upset him.
0: <laughs> what about your mom?
1: Um, She was raised Methodist, I think, and I was baptized Methodist. But I don't know what that means. We've never been to a Methodist church. I don't really know anything about that particular sect of Christianity, so I think it's more just like her family was probably Methodist, and it's just like something they did like out of tradition maybe. yeah like that
0: that's the thing there's some like some people who are Christian, you know it's a sort of a social thing they're not super dogmatic about it and uh, like my daughter goes to an Episcopalian church. It feels a little bit more like relaxed than the Catholicism that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's different, you know, there's different levels of intensity depending on which, uh, denomination you're involved with. But yeah, definitely. What, what was your dad into? Like, what was his, did he have a church?
1: Um, he didn't, I don't think he had a particular church. Like, you know, when I was. Um, a little bit older, I remember like we went on a road trip, we were going to go to the grand Canyon, but we ran out of time. So you went to go see, um, this like giant meteor crater in Arizona.
0: (laughs) I I have been there. I have been to that and I forget it's like the Winslow, is it called the Winslow crater? I I, I, I
1: think, I think it's near Winslow. Okay.
0: Maybe it's like, yeah, maybe it's near Winslow, Arizona, or maybe I'm quoting a Eagle song. (laughs) I think it's both. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, anyway, I've, I've stood there. That's actually an impressive sight
1: it is it's really weird i remember looking at it and it my brain was like this isn't real so maybe one day i'll go to the grand canyon and i can also look at it and be like this isn't real
0: (laughs) have have you have you ever been to the grand canyon
1: i haven't no Uh,
0: i just went in january for the first time since i was about 20 years old 19 years old maybe Uh, i had not been since then and i took my family uh for like just it was like the first week of the year so like january 2nd we got there or whatever. And it was spectacular. Like, I was like, wow, I got to come back here. And uh, I don't know. It's just like one of these things where like I had been there and I I was like, oh, yeah, I remember it. It was impressive. But this time it really like registered with me. I was like, wow, this is a this is like a spectacular natural monument to time. Yeah, that's what it made me think of. And it was just cool to to see it with my kids. But it's something that I recommend. And I also feel like Arizona is inherently weird. Like there's just something weird and extra, like extraterrestrial about Arizona. (laughs) Uh So if you're, uh, if you're in that kind of like mindset, if you're in that, you know, some sort of, uh, I don't know if you feel weird about life, go to Arizona and stare at the grand Canyon.
1: Yeah. It's, um, Arizona is awesome. I think I, I stayed in Flagstaff, um, one time when I was like driving through to go visit a friend in Sacramento and like, I love driving through Arizona. It's so pretty.
0: It is, it, but it's also uh, like, you know, there's also something really desolate and it depends where mm-hmm. you are. It depends where you are, I guess, like flags, mm-hmm. flagstaffs at elevation. So you have some, some snow and some mountains and stuff, but there are sections of Arizona where, um, you know, it's like, you just feel like, well, this is where the, this is where the bodies are buried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what kind of, uh, what kind of child were you, you know, like only children, um, you know, you have to sort of learn how to entertain yourself. I imagine that was like part of it, you know, you're kind of growing up, you're you're reading books, you're playing games, like you're...
1: yeah, um I don't know, like sometimes I have a really hard time remembering my childhood. I um like I didn't really have a lot of friends when I was younger cuz we like moved, you know, we moved around and stuff um until I got to Colorado cuz we had stayed there for a while, but I think I was pretty internal Um, I painted a lot like my parents always bought me a lot of art supplies and like really encouraged that Um, I did music for a while but I was always like I never stuck with one thing I was always like switching it up like I learned how to play the cello when I was in like fourth grade. And then I hated the cello because it was too big to like carry around and stuff. And I didn't like it because, you know, I was like this like tiny fourth grader. (laughs) And then I think I got to like middle school and I started trying to play the clarinet. And then I got bored of that. And then I wanted to play the xylophone. And then I got bored of that. And then I just kind of (laughs) like, I never like stuck, you know, with like any one thing. Um, But like I like to paint. um, And, um, you know wrote poetry and, like, that kind of stuff. Um,
0: But not a lot of friends. Like, you had friends in high school?
1: Yeah, I had a lot of good friends in high school. um, And I felt like, I think I was probably more like a social butterfly of, like, all the weird outcast kids in high school. Like, I feel like I didn't really have one particular group that I hung out with, but I had, like, a lot of really good friends, so.
0: And what did your folks do? Like, well, why were you guys moving around so much?
1: My dad was in the military. Uh, um, okay. Yeah, so that's why he was, he was actually in England, uh, because he was stationed at this place called Menwith Hill Station, and my mom was a waitress there. <laughs> so, like, they met each other, you know, um, and fell in love and stuff, and then uh, they moved uh, back to America, um, and um, then... He was he was stationed at Fort Gordon in Georgia so we stayed there for a while and then he got out like in the 90s. I'm trying to remember how old I was, but he was in for like 22 years. He was like career military.
0: Yeah, no, I just talked to Will Mackin on the show and he uh, he was in the Navy for 23 years, I think, and then he got his retirement.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. So what
0: what what branch of the armed services was your dad in?
1: Uh, my dad was in the army.
0: Oh, he was. Okay. So like but yeah. he, but Colorado Springs, I I'm, I'm always associating that with the Air Force. They have an army base there too
1: they do um they have like this thing called the battle lab my dad's are a lot of like satellite telecommunications and stuff so um he was always working on that kind of stuff like working with satellites when he got out um he i think still does defense contracting um like he's helped um on really cool projects like there's this one project he did called um Iris and it was about putting an IP router in space like basically um trying to work to get like internet to people on the ground like where there's no possible internet um i don't know a lot of crazy like technical stuff like he's like helped uh you know rockets like going to space like it's pretty crazy i don't, I know. <laughs> I don't know yeah I, I never really knew like exactly like what he did but He's done um, like a lot of cool stuff like that. So. It's it's
0: funny how common that is for for children or you know for for people to not understand fully what their parents do professionally because I I sort of feel that way too. I mean I have some concept but especially when I was a kid I was like I don't quite know what he does but he goes to work every day seems to be yeah. <laughs> seems to be working out.
1: <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know. I I kind of. Um enjoyed from from my childhood. I enjoyed like when he was in the military because we would always like he would always have like really big barbecues and stuff in the backyard and because these are like people you work with, like your brothers in service and stuff. Um there were like always people around. Um Yeah, you have and, you
0: have that like built-in community and you and you sort of have to you have to make it work in the military. You you got to get along to some extent.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I think so. Um so that was like really um, interesting, so
0: and then what uh like when you get out of you get through high school, it seems like you you know it wasn't a horrible experience like it is for some people you had mm-hmm. you had an okay time in high school,
1: yeah, it was decent, I mean, like I feel like when I think back on it, there's like people I'm glad though I'm never gonna see again, <laughs>
0: <laughs> right,
1: but um like i you know I have friends that I'd made that I still, you know, a few that I still talk to today. Um, But like a lot of people, like the large majority of people, I just kind of like lost touch with, you know,
0: it's hard. It's, you know, it's really hard. I think like this is where I struggle when it comes to keeping in touch with friends and family is that if they're if you're not in front of me, like if you're in front of me or I have access to your actual person, then great. Like I'm, I'm one, you know, I'm good that way, but I'm not great at texting and keeping up and I don't like email I don't even, mm-hmm. I don't even really love the phone. You know, I, uh, I, I, like to be with people. So unless you're in somebody's actual physical, you know, unless you're in my physical presence, I, I do a bad job of, of keeping in touch. I feel like.
1: Yeah. I'm like really bad at keeping in touch with people too. It's super tough. I try like with texting and emails and stuff like that. Um, especially now just cause since I'm home a lot, you know, it's a little bit more isolating. Right. Um, and I have, I have so many, um, like internet friends, like I've had internet friends since I was like 16. So, you know, that part is kind of normal, but I do get worse at it as I get older.
0: Well, and then um, this, is, this is the thing too, for a guy my age is, uh, you know, I did not have internet friends. I had actual, mm-hmm. I had actual friends, mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, but I, I find myself whenever I'm in digital, uh, exchanges, unless it's with somebody that I'm, I don't know. I have a, a small handful of people that I text frequently, uh, you get into a text exchange and you never know when to end it. It's like, well, who's going to say the last thing? And like, do I need to say something more? And like, is it rude for me to just go quiet now because I'm distracted or I have other things to do? Do you you know what I'm saying? It's kind of stressful.
1: Yeah, it can be. I tend to like, I will, I will, not respond to a message. If I feel too stressed out and then I'll just like wait a day or something <laughs> that person,
0: yeah. no, but then, but then when you're on the other end of it, you're like, wait, well, why did they just go quiet? What are they doing? Like what's happening on the other end? Did they just put the phone down like on purpose? Yeah. Cause they're sick of me. Or like, do they actually have an emergency? You know, it's, it gets to be like, I find myself like burning mental energy that would probably be better spent elsewhere.
1: Yeah. I know. It's exhausting. We all just need to like destroy our cell phones and go back to analog life.
0: Yeah. We need to move to the Ozarks is what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we need
1: to move to the
0: Ozarks. So did you ever have a freak out? Like, did you go, like what happened after high school?
1: Um, well, what do you mean by freak
0: out? I don't know. Did <laughs> you do a bunch of drugs? Did you like, uh, go off the rails or like, you know, have a, have a period of your life where you felt really lost and angry or anything like that? Like,
1: yeah, I mean, I did, that was my high school, oh. I think. I think that's why I'm like, eh, because I, um, yeah, like, I did a lot of drugs and stuff in high school and drinking. And, um, like, in college I drank, but I think by the time I got to college I had already gotten so much of that out of my system that, like, I didn't, I don't know, it didn't really affect, like, drinking and doing drugs and stuff in college didn't really affect me the way, like, it did some of my peers. Like, I saw some people get really derailed by it. And I was like, man, that already happened to me. <laughs> yeah,
0: you're like there, done that. Where, what did yeah. you do? What did you do in high school? What, like, what happened?
1: Oh well, I mean, I just like, um, I, you know, I started smoking weed. You know, when I was like thirteen or fourteen or something. I think everyone does that. And then like, in
0: in, Col- me... in Colorado, in particular, there's a there's a pretty intense yeah. a pretty intense drug culture in Colorado and drinking culture.
1: Is there? I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and like. Um, yeah, I started, you know, I was drinking, um, on the weekends with my friends and I was like doing pharmaceutical drugs and stuff, like just taking pills. Um, like for a while I just like was really into like, like snorting things. I'm glad I'm like over, (laughs) um, that period of my life. But, um, what kind kind of
0: pills? Like, was it like opiates and stuff or like Adderall or?
1: Yeah, it was stupid. She was like Adderall or like Bar or like Zoloft. I was taking anything I really could get my hands on because I was just like stupid and like young and depressed, I guess. And, um, and like my, you know, my friends were going through that period too. And, um, it's like who you party with, you know what I mean?
0: Right. Well, yeah. It's and, like, like social reinforcement. It's like, oh, it, well, if, if everyone's doing it, it must be, must be fine to be snorting, <laughs> you know, yeah. prescription drugs.
1: Yeah. And like, you know, I went to raves and stuff like that. I was like really heavily into rave culture, um, during the like middle to later part of my teens. Um, and then, but then when I was like 17 or 18, I think, um, I, I stopped and like tried to get sober for a while. Part of it was because I was um, in a journalism class, like I was running the new, like the school newspaper. And so I felt really responsible for that. And then, um, I had, I had an eating disorder develop and that kind of got a lot worse. And so what happened was I developed a lot of things anxi- like social anxiety. So it kind of worked to, for me to like be sober cause I was just like too anxious to do anything. But then I think my addiction like switched from like, doing drugs to like trying to lose weight, like my obsession or whatever, just kinda like switched to that. And so I just kinda like dealt with that for a while.
0: What was the disorder? Um, was it like not eating or, or uh bulimia or
1: um I mean it was both. Like, you know, it was like um like I was I had started where I was like, oh I'm just gonna like try to stop eating and stuff and it kind of like spiraled out of control. And I didn't um get really, really sick until I did start, like, throwing up my food, and with bulimia, like, it was just, like, I lost a ton of weight, like, really fast, and, um, like, I probably shouldn't say it that way, that sounds so bad, but, um... You know i got like really sick and my emotions got like way more volatile like i got way more suicidal feeling and like way less stable um because of throwing up it was like crazy
0: well you know it affects your all this stuff affects your chemistry like when you were talking about rave culture uh like i remember in college i went to like one or two raves and I i just found them terrifying I found it very scary. <laughs> I was like, what do I do? Because I'm not a dancing person. Like, I was just mm-hmm. like, I'm like, I'm in this weird warehouse. People are so fucked up and like, <laughs> there's, like lights flashing in my face. I was like, I got to get out of here. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I think back to like, and also the kinds of drugs that you do, a lot of people are on like ecstasy and speedy drugs mm-hmm. and doing that sort of stuff. And I think that, you know, the accumulation of those chemicals in your brain can fuck with your moods pretty severely. And then you, you add to that, um, you know, not eating or like, you know, Mm -hmm. messing, messing with your nutrition. It's like, it's no wonder that you're in a situation where all of a sudden you're, you're feeling suicidal or, you know, super volatile emotionally.
1: Oh yeah, definitely.
0: So how did you get out of it?
1: Um, I don't, it's like a really tough question. I like, I tried to go to therapy a few times and like, for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. Like I've just never done good with working with therapists, you know, for some reason. And I don't really know why, but, um, well, you gotta, get, you,
0: you gotta get the right one. Cause I had this, yeah. I've only been once, but I was like, ah, oh, that was a, that was a <laughs> meh. Like I didn't care. I was, I don't want to go back to that. Like, not because I was trying to avoid something, but just because I didn't find the experience helpful, but, you know, yeah. like, I was sort of like, that was a, I've had better conversations on this podcast, you know, uh, by far.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I always felt frustrated because I felt like I knew more about like my own mental illnesses than the person that was trying to like help me. And I, yeah, I de- definitely just like kind of felt like they weren't helpful. Like maybe if I ever found the right person to talk to, it could be because I know I have some friends who do get a lot out of therapy and like it works really well for them.
0: Yeah, no. If you, I think if you find mm-hmm. somebody who can really challenge you on your shit, I think that's what it, that's what it is. Like, the, mm-hmm. but it's it's not necessarily like a to denigrate the profession of, uh, you know, psychotherapy or whatever mm-hmm. people who are, who are working as therapists. It's just to recognize that like finding a match is not easy. Sort of like, I think, uh, finding like, you know, your favorite authors or finding books that really register. Like that's not necessarily easy either. Like, you know, mm-hmm. but, but when you find one that really does register, you tend to get a lot out of it.
1: Yeah, no, that's true, and yeah, I went through, like, I went through a few periods of, like, recovery and relapse, um, for, like, like, I don't know, like, seven to eight years, and then, um, like, when I met my husband, he knew, like, he knew already about, like, all my eating problems and stuff, and he was, like, fully aware of them, and, like, I think for the first three to four years that we dated, he, like, would not, um, like, let me get away with my bullshit so to speak like he was really and still was really good at like calling me on things but being like real about it not being selfish I know a lot of people who they try to control like sick people in their lives by like you know trying to control what they eat or trying to control what they weigh to like make sure they're quote-unquote healthier but like he was really good at helping me untangle like the really deep-rooted issues about like why I had an eating disorder and like where it was coming, you know, coming from and like that sort of thing without trying to control me. And like that, I had never, I had never seen that or experienced that before in my life from anyone. So
0: sounds like, yeah, like Yoda.
1: Oh yeah. He's like really smart.
0: (laughs) Well, but I mean, no, but it's also, you know, it's, 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 it's worth like digging into a little bit more because it's hard when you are, when you have people in your life, whether it's a significant other or a friend or a family member, and you can see them being unhealthy. Uh, and, and, of course, we can always see this in other people better than I think we we see it in ourselves for some reason. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you see someone who is being unhealthy in whatever way, uh, it's stressful when you care about them to see mm-hmm. them doing that. And so you want them to change that behavior. But it's not easy to do. I mean, I think ultimately the person has got to want to change. But if you want to try to be helpful to them... Uh, it's so challenging because, you know, you, you can st- sort of say like, Hey, this is stressing me out or, Hey, uh, I'd like you to consider <laughs> not do, not doing X or trying Y and it never, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't usually work. Like, what did he do that actually felt beneficial to you and didn't make you, um, turn away? You know what I'm saying? Or, or sort of like get it, you know, build up a wall.
1: Yeah, so um, he really taught me how to self-analyze without being self de- like degrading, um, and this is really interesting too. It kind of goes back. I feel like it's kind of like related to Buddhism in a way, um, because he he grew up in Japan and lived there until he was like thirteen or fourteen years old, and so like he knows a lot about like Shinto Buddhism, and that kind of has informed his like worldview. He like sees things really holistically. And so, like, I never – I had never met someone who, um, like, had, has thought, like, as holistically, like, as he has, you know. And so, um, if I was, like, having a really tough time or um, – I'm trying to, like, think of specific examples. You know, if I was engaging in behavior that was, like, anxious, avoidant, or um, trying to be controlling in my own way or, um, like – just doing something that was, like, self-destructive and not realizing why, um, he would really, like, sit down with me and, like, even when we would fight, he would, like, be patient with me and help me, like, unravel, like, what I was really upset about um, and, like, really get to, like, the core of it and, like, try to, like, he kind of encouraged me to try to understand myself in a way, you know, and so I think... Just being able to be analytical about, like, my behaviors from an objective viewpoint really helped put in perspective, like, what I was doing and being able to, like, let go of it and, like, seeing an seeing issue for what it was. You know, like, being able to, for example, um, get angry at the right people. Like, that was a big thing I did was internalize uh, my anger. Like, um, like I think the like perfectionist mindset that happens a lot where you never feel good enough and stuff. But I was really trying, what I had to do was pinpoint like, you know, why did I feel this way? Why was I trying to like live up to someone else's standards? Like all these kinds of things, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, who you who were you angry at?
1: My parents. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was a big part of it. I don't know.
0: Just trying to kind of, did they set really high expectations for you? Did you feel?
1: Um, yeah, I felt, I felt like, um, I was pushed really hard, which like isn't necessarily bad. You know, I'm really grateful for my upbringing. You know, it wasn't idyllic, but it also like wasn't the worst thing, you know, but I think everyone has issues with their parents and I just really had to parse through mine because I did have a lot of, um, like high expectations that I had to meet for like grades and that kind of thing.
0: Well, but you know, and it's, it's funny too, because like, it's so easy to blame your parents for whatever difficulties you may be having in mm-hmm. life, you know, they're just the they're the most they're the easiest target so much of the mm-hmm. time. And you know, some people um who who aren't so lucky, you know, with with their uh, upbringing, they may have like a, like real <laughs> legitimate grievances, you know. I, yeah. So I don't mean to diminish those, but I just, you know, I think I think from my own experience it's pretty easy to kind of point to mom and dad and like what they did and what they didn't do and that's why I'm so x you know right now and you know at some point you gotta yeah. you gotta let that go
1: well it's true and at some point too you have to like ask yourself how complicit you are in the situation as well like i think that there's a really there's a paradoxical thing with eating disorders in particular where um you know the person has a mental illness and they're sick but there's also a level of behavior they're engaging in that is like addiction where they're choosing well not i mean not everyone i'm just saying like from my perspective it's like you're choosing to engage in behavior that you know is self-destructive And, um, and I don't like, I'm still, I think always going to have like this weird, um, eating disorder urge inside my brain, but I can ignore it and like rationalize, like, you know, why those behaviors aren't good to keep myself stable. So it's like understanding like where, where I'm complicit, like in my own suffering, I guess, like that also helped. And that came from like being able to, I guess, participate in self-analysis. Yeah. A lot better. You gotta yeah. you
0: gotta be you gotta be aware of what's going on, you know, internally and especially internally, but also how you're behaving in the world,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: uh, that's not always easy. You know, mm-hmm. I think that it, it's like the word that was coming to mind earlier was just like responsibility. When I was talking about like blaming parents and stuff, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a big pain in the ass to become responsible for your life. You know, like I'm I'm responsible for how I feel. I'm responsible for uh, how I respond to whatever comes my way in life, you know, and it's, it's certainly not all going to be good.
1: Yeah. Like I think, um, yeah, for me, I think as far as feelings go, like, I don't think I can necessarily control my feelings. Like sometimes I'm just going to be like sad and not know why, but I can definitely, um, be responsible like for my reaction to it, you know, like feeling is an internal thing and that's something that's always going to be mine that I'm just going to like let flow or whatever. But in terms of like how I react to it, I think that makes sense. Like, I'm allowed to be angry. Like, I think anger is okay and it's healthy. But how you synthesize that anger and put it into the world is, like, obviously can either be extremely detrimental or it can be um, productive. You know what I mean?
0: How do you make it productive? Because, like, this is something I struggle with where, like, I will get frustrated sometimes. And, like, I'll be, like, I'll just, like, lose my cool. And then my daughter will be, like dad, you're You're scaring me. And I'll be like, Oh shit. I mean, not like, not horrible, but she'll just be like, daddy, why are you yelling? And I'll just be like, Oh, I feel like such a dick. You know, like I don't want my daughter or my son to grow up and be like, I remember when dad would scare us all, you know, by, but sometimes it's like Clark Griswold, you know, like I just fucking lose it, you know, like there's just so much happening and, um, I don't know. It feels like, it feels like a tea kettle, you know, the steam coming out, that kind of thing. But how do you synthesize anger in a way that is healthier.
1: Um I guess for me like
0: Let's get your husband let's get your husband on the phone so he can help us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know right. I think for me when I get angry, um I just try to put it into I like put it into like my writing um or like a really good workout or I just like use that for as energy for like other things it really depends It's kind of like a case by case basis. Cause you know, all our feelings are all so unique to us.
0: Yeah. 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 But you also yeah. have to be, you have to be aware of it when it's happening. You have to have at least you, like, you have to have some sort of like psychological distance from the emotion itself just so that you can be like watching it. And then when, once you know, it's there, like that alone is like a victory as opposed to just like becoming it.
1: Yeah. It's like, it is. And it's always going to be a process of like you learning to be aware of like how you're reacting and like, Putting your feelings out there too, you know. So even if you like fuck up, you can't really get hung up on that either, because then then you just keep feeling bad about yourself. <laughs>
0: yeah. Then then like, well, guilt is a selfish emotion. You're just wallowing, you know. It's like, oh god, it's like a, it's like you, you're boxed in no matter what. <laughs> yeah. Um. So okay. So are you sober now?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, I like I was drinking, um, before I got pregnant, you know, and then I stopped, and I haven't really. Um gotten back into drinking like since giving birth. It's kinda of funny. I think this is like the longest I've ever abstained from like any substance in a really long time. And I had some drinks on my birthday this year and I felt like weird. Like I was like, I forgot what it's like to be drunk. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost uncomfortable. It was really funny.
0: Well, you know, I went through this. Like I <laughs> was talking about this on this show. Like I back in November like right around yeah, right around November, like as we were getting towards the holidays, I was like, I'm not going to have my glass or two of wine every night. And mm-hmm. I never, I never have more. Like I'm not a, a guy who I don't like drink a bottle of wine or anything like that. But I was like, why am I doing this? I'm self-medicating. Like, why do I, why do I do this little ritual? So I stopped. And then in February, I started again. I was like, ah, I'm just going to have a glass of wine. I like it. Mm-hmm. And I still feel, I mean, it's the Catholic guilt thing or, or this like self, uh, Self-criticism, or we're concerned that like I'm, I've got a blind spot, or some area of weakness that I need to work on, or it's not mm-hmm. Bud- it's not Buddhist enough, you know, and like. Uh,
1: I don't <laughs> isn't know that how... like? Isn't that like? Not Buddhist to get hung up on <laughs> the <laughs> not Buddhist things <laughs> you're doing.
0: <laughs> well, but it's like you can read different things, you know. It's like some you'll read some story about like a Buddhist dude who's like, oh, you just had a hamburger, and then there's other ones who like live these like really austere existences and are like, why would you? You, know, you shouldn't be drinking any alcohol. It's just a poison mm-hmm. and it just gets confusing. And I just want to do it right. You know, I want to do my life as not right, but I want to do my life um well, wisely. Mm-hmm. And that can be, that can be challenging to figure out exactly how that's supposed to look. And then, you know, when you go on a podcast and you're like, I'm just going to stop doing this. And then you stop, but then you start again. You're like, well, did did I just make an ass of myself? And do do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, Mm -hmm. I find myself like fixated on it. And then it's like, well, if I'm fixated on it, what's there, there must be something there. Maybe it is a problem. And Mm
1: -hmm. it's
0: just, I spiral in my thinking, you know?
1: Yeah, no, I totally get that.
0: So do you, but you, like, if, if you had like a pretty bad eating disorder, you know, that that was difficult and required some years of work Mm -hmm. Um, and you were doing a lot of drugs in high school, but then that sort of tapered. Like, do you have what you would feel is like a traditional, like addictive um, personality thing happening or is it more obsessive or do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you, how do you define it?
1: I think, I think it's more obsessive. I feel like, um, through all of like the stuff that I've done, even like bad habits I've developed, even when they were like really bad, I've always somehow, like, kind of pulled myself out of it, like when I needed to, you know. Like over the last few years, I was drinking a lot, um, like, like a, like way a lot, even like on like work week nights and stuff. Showing up to work like really hungover, and. Um, Whenever like that would happen, I would always try to like pull myself out and stop drinking for a little bit. But then I like kind of get sucked back in because I think how I don't know if I'm this way anymore. But how I used to be was it's like I can either have like one drink or I'm having like 10 shots of vodka. And there's never really like any in between, I just kind of hit my bucket point and keep going
0: but see um, you're also still you're young still like i like i just i can't do that shit i'm too old like your, <laughs> your body just doesn't let you you know like i, I don't I feel think
1: like my body doesn't let me do it
0: anymore <laughs> see but like, expect once, you, once you have kid too i mean it's like now you got to get up in the morning or t- multiple times yeah. in the night like it just you know it just becomes biologically impossible or you're just you know or it's just like a train wreck and you're trying to do both at the same time it just doesn't work out
1: yeah i know it can be super tough um, but yeah, I would say that's why I'm like, I don't think I have like an addictive personality, but I definitely am obsessive because I notice, um, like if I feel out of control in my life, I'll feel like the eating disorder urges start to come back really strong and it'll be like, here's something that you can control here. Why don't you like count your calories every single day? Because it matters. Even if I'm like not starving myself, I'm like still going to track, you know, like everything I eat for some reason. Um, like, but what, like you I, you write it down. Yeah, like I write it down or I use like um, like a ch- calorie tracking app or something like that. But if I have like a project that I'm working on, like, you know, like my book, for example, or whatever, um, I just start to obsess about that instead. And then I'll just think about that like all the time. And then I notice like the, the other obsessive things, they kind of like fall away a little bit. Well, see, it's this like- is
0: – I want to say this. I mean, I don't mean to make light, but I feel like when I talk to writers who – have struggled with addiction or you know obsessive tendencies in the past like mm-hmm. like if you channel it properly it can be a boon to your creative existence <laughs> am i wrong yeah
1: no well see i yeah i think i saw like a new york times headline recently that said something about whether or not sobriety was like bad for creativity and i don't think that it's true i think that you can be sober and be creative because i I personally do not believe there's anything wrong with obsession. Obsession is, like, perfectly healthy as long as, like, you know, you're not obsessing about things that are going to destroy your life. You know what I mean? Right. Um. But, like, that's how I feel about it. I think obsession is fine. It's it's good to, like, be, like, so into, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, like, with your life, that you do it until the day that you die. That's, that's an engine that, like, drives, yeah, like, creativity and, like, innovation and, you know... I guess, like, society in a way. Like, everyone who has been obsessed with something to create something new, they, like, help push humanity forward in a way, so...
0: That's exactly right. And so, uh, like, let's talk about you in writing. Like, how did that come to be? Was this something that you were thinking about as a young person, or is it something that you came to later
1: in your adult life? Um, I think, you know, I had, like, written stories and stuff when I was, like, really little, um, but I don't ever remember thinking that I wanted to be a writer until... I was like hmm I think I was like 14 or 15 and I had just discovered like um diaryland and like live journal like when that was like the social media before, you know, social media. Right. And I had like met all these girls uh who were into girl writing and they were like writing really cool poetry. And so um I started doing that a lot online and I like obviously like developed this romantic notion of being like a starving writer in New York city, <laughs> you know, when I was like 16 and like, for, and I was like in love with Elliot Smith and like all that stuff. But, um, I pursued journalism, um, in later part of high school and in college. Cause I figured that would actually be the way that I could make a career as a writer. And then
0: where did you go to college?
1: I, I went to college at Colorado state university in oh, Fort Collins. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and um, when I graduated, uh, Denver had lost, like, two of its newspapers because the newspaper industry was collapsing. <laughs> well,
0: the, no, the Denver Post just laid off, I think, half of its staff or something. There's like, a big bloodbath yeah. there just, like, a week ago.
1: Seriously, yeah. And so, like, at that time, it was, like, impossible to get a really good, like, an internship or a reporting job unless you're someone who, like, really wanted to be, like, married to the work and, um, I just kind of like went into marketing instead and forgot a little bit about writing until 2013. Um, I saw that Tom Spanbauer was, um, doing his like dangerous writing class, you know, I don't know if you know about that. Well,
0: I mean, Tom Spanbauer is uh, he's like the Oracle of Portland for writers, right? He's like, had that, he, yeah. he had, a. It's like Cheryl Strayed and Lydia Yuknovich and uh, Chuck, mm-hmm. Chuck Palahniuk and all those people have sort of passed through his writing workshops and gathers. yeah,
1: yeah. And he was he was doing this like yearly writing class, and so um, I had the opportunity to go to that. And once I went to that, I discovered that you could try to like publish stuff that you wrote. I don't know why it never occurred to me like before that you, you could like try to publish your short stories. I just never thought of it. Um, and so since then I've like been more seriously trying to write and like, um, you know, and publish and get into the literature world. Cause I didn't know, I didn't even know, um, that like you could start your own literary magazine. I didn't know how any of that stuff worked until like 2013.
0: So. Wow. And then the yeah. the, the floodgates opened. Yeah. Well, I should tell you like I, a couple of things, like first impressions of your book, uh, is that the, the young woman on the cover looks, I, I tweeted this to you. I think, I feel like she looks like Emma Watson from the Harry Potter, uh, Harry Potter oh, movies. Really? <laughs> yeah, don't you think?
1: <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Now that I think of it. Yeah.
0: I mean, like at first I thought it was her. And then I was like, no, but it's just like, it just struck me. And mm-hmm. then secondly, uh, I feel like you're really good at writing about sex and I don't mean to sound <laughs> creepy, but like, I, I really don't. I, it's a hard thing to write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fiction, and to do it well, and to do it in because I mean they even have a bad sex in writing award that they hand out every year. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with that?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I mean, it's like, and they, you know, the, the award will go to like, you know, people like Philip Roth will get it, or you know, very accomplished writers will mm-hmm. be sort of lampooned for writing about sex really awkwardly. So whenever I notice somebody writing about sex in a way that feels like accurate and, uh, you know, art artistically refined, I notice it. And I'm just curious to know um, how you got so good at it.
1: Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, I just really like to examine like the relationships that people like between people, you know, um, I, I really like, I don't know. I just, uh, I love like those tiny ministerial interactions that people have that like create romance or the like, complete opposite of romance, you know, like all the type of longing and stuff that like really hurts about relationships. Um, and I just like, I spent a lot of time like thinking about it and like rolling that stuff over in my head and like trying to figure out like why people do particular things. Um, I really I feel like sex is like one of these like the one of like the driving factors to like all life on the planet. It's really important. It always comes off as if sex is like superficial, but like it's really it's really not in my opinion. so I don't know. I think that's part of it.
0: <laughs> I mean, did you but have you read are there writers that you've read or who you know whose work you turn to as a sort of like a guiding uh, example of how to do it?
1: Yeah, um I really love Mary Gill. Um, she's like really good at writing about these types of interpersonal interactions between people. Um, Spanbauer too, obviously like he is, um, he's so good at like really, um, slowing down the emotion of a particular scene.
0: I was just going to say that I was just going to say, I was, or I was Mm -hmm. thinking, I was thinking to myself, like one of the ways that you probably do a better job of writing about sex is to like slow the fuck down and actually Mm -hmm. pay attention to each of these little moments, like internally, externally, physically, emotionally, and to try to depict that, which is, I think Mm -hmm. what you, I think that's what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I remember too, like it's, it's kind of related. I remember when I read the bell jar for the first time, I was always struck by the like immediate, the feeling of immediacy that I got like from Sylvia Plath's work, for example. And so I really, I want to try to focus, like, on that, the immediacy of the moment a lot. Um, and then another really good piece of advice that I got was actually from Elizabeth Allen when um, she had told me uh, that, like, and I don't think this is, like, a hard and fast rule or anything. Like, I remember like, using the word, like, penis or something like that, some, like, really basic, like, anatomy word for describing, like, a sex scene, she had mentioned that it came off, like, kind of porny, and I was, like, hey, I think you're kind of right, and so I kind of tried to avoid, um, like, using some of those, like, basic anatomical words, like, when describing, um, like, these interactions between people, because I feel, like, um, it kind of, it, like, adds to the, like, atmosphere, I guess.
0: I don't know. Well, and it's also like, like we, the reader sort of knows that there's a penis involved, you know,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. you don't have to necessarily like make it explicit. You can talk yeah. about, you can talk about other aspects or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's funny that you mentioned Elizabeth, because I feel like there's a commonality between, uh, your work. Like there's, I feel like when I read her and when I read you, uh, there's that immediacy. There's also this sense of like, wow, this person's really being honest with me. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a trick of the fiction or if it—if that's actually, I think that's what's happening. I don't know. That, that, it's just that, that sense that I get, like where I'm like, whoa, the, she's going there, you know? And I, I appreciate that as a reader because uh, sometimes I can really enjoy something, but I still find myself wondering like what the writer really feels or I don't know. I, I don't know. I just get a sense of, I, I get a sense of someone who is, honestly grappling with herself and her life and with life in general Mm -hmm. in your work. I'm trying to pay you a compliment.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Like one thing I, I, one thing I do love about Elizabeth's work is that, um, if it feels like she doesn't force the fiction and I feel like sometimes you can read stuff that feels like it's like really forced her fiction always sounds so natural. Like the way that she tells a story just feels really, it's like, um, it's not distant that's not the right word to describe it, but it's just really um like restrained and thoughtful that's well, what I like about Elizabeth
0: well, work. and it's also you but it's also like guys talking like it's not like there's like rocket ships landing on the earth or like aliens like you know kidnapping people um it's like normal everyday stuff like you go to the mm-hmm. store or you're talking to somebody over coffee but you know, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's gripping and that's a credit to, I mean, that's good writing. You know, you make even like these, um, common sort of, uh, experiences that we all have seem new somehow.
1: Yeah. Thank you. So um, I, wa- I want
0: to ask you like, like polyam is it polyamory? Like when you, you know, you have this relationship at the heart of your, uh, book involving Lilith and, uh, a couple, and she sort of gets subsumed, uh, by this, couple, it feels like, and and sort of Mm -hmm. loses herself in this um, polyamorous relationship. Am I using my terminology right? That's polyamory, right? Where there's more than two people?
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. Polyamory is like a big umbrella too. And I think that the the polyamory community would probably um, classify lilith as like a unicorn and like the couple as like unicorn hunters (laughs) it's like really funny
0: what does that mean what is a unicorns like the the third wheel
1: a unicorn is a bi chick that is down to fuck both the husband and the wife or like the male and the female in this in a particular couple and the couple like they're they're the ones that are like, We're looking for like the third wheel. So like they're the unicorn hunters.
0: Oh, okay. The unicorn
1: Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
0: Have you ever been in a relationship like this?
1: Um I mean I've had like a couple like loose relationships, you know, that have um like been more open and stuff when I was in college, but yeah. I mean I like chicks and I like men, so
0: Okay. But I mean like it's like the, like there's some like aspects like uh, like some scenes in the story that can get pretty intense, like the you know, there's like the Walmart scene and stuff and I'm just I'm always, i find myself thinking like, wow, has she been through this? You know? Like
1: <laughs> No, yeah. A lot of the book is like pretty heavily fictionalized, so
0: <laughs> um so how long did it take you to write it?
1: Um, I would say it took me from like full like beginning to end probably for four years just from like the idea existing into to like now like it being published so
0: what did you and, what, and you were trying to like explore i guess obsession and identity and the ways in which like people lose themselves in relationships and like really and, and and in the ways in which we can obsess about uh those with whom we are in relationships
1: yeah, like I I really um I wanted to explore more non-traditional relationships. I really like um I like seeing that type of stuff in literature because I just feel like it's not very common. And I also uh, really wanted to explore some of the mechanisms of like manipulation within relate those relationships like some of it is like examining like how um like heteronormative relationships work and then seeing how some of the more queer stuff like can play into that and like bend those rules and also um uh one thing that I really wanted to explore that I'm always interested in is how um uh friendships between women can develop like really quickly and become close, like really, really fast. But at the same time, uh, at the same time, they can become like really toxic really quickly. And so I really wanted to um, sort of explore that too.
0: Well, there's like the old cliche with lesbian relationships where it's like this, like the second date is like it involves a U-Haul or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you're moving in all of a sudden, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, but I feel like, yeah, I've, I, and I've experienced that with uh, like friends of mine who are in, uh, you know, same sex female relationships where like, it gets really intense and then the breakups can be really intense.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely just kind of wanted to explore some of that. Cause I mean, I've had like really close friendships and stuff too, um, with women that, um, like I don't even, that I don't talk to anymore either. And so it's really interesting and I still feel like sad about, losing those friendships, I think as I'm older now, I can like look back at them and just be like, well, here, you know, objectively, here's why like that didn't work out or why this person wasn't a good person to be in my life. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, at the time, like those situations, they are, they're like really hard, especially when you're a person that like feels really intensely. It's easy to become really close.
0: Sure. And we want to and become and we, really vulnerable. We want that as people like, I mean, everybody wants to have close friends and close, I mean, I guess most people anyway, want to have want to have like, a love in their lives or, you know, a feeling of a connection with people because it can be, especially I think nowadays in the digital age, um, with so much happening at a remove, it can be hard to know exactly. Sometimes like, like, are we friends? You know, like, is this real? <laughs> you know, like.
1: Yeah, totally. It's really interesting too. I think, um, like in the digital age, because I feel like it's so much easier to over exaggerate feelings on the internet. And so you never really know if like that closeness is true or not. There's always like an anxiousness that's kind of like underwriting it where you're like, is this person just like a yes man and, you know, trying to support me or do they like really care about me? Why are they using 10 exclamation marks? Is that because they do really like me or is that just because they're excited? and Never, just
0: never trust, never trust the person who uses 10 exclamation marks.
1: Hey, I use like five, so, (laughs) That's that's
0: okay. That's okay. (laughs) Anything more than five and it's trouble. Right. Um, Yeah, you know, and and I feel too like it's pretty easy to be emotive on and and to be like kind online or, you know, at a remove like that. It's a much harder thing to do on a consistent basis when you're actually interacting with a person, you know, in in the real. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. So I, I think you can kind of get away with superficiality and... And it doesn't really cost you much to like throw a few exclamation marks in, but to actually, um, be, be physically excited <laughs> about another person's <laughs> success in person or to do something that requires a sacrifice of time or resources. It's, it's different, you know, it's a different level of, um, commitment and, uh, connectivity.
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. So, I... oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, I was saying I'm just I'm just reading um, *Heroines* by Kate Zambrino right now, and I think she talks a little bit about that too, where um, she was like staying at home and journaling a lot, and she was like blogging about um, like Zelda Fitzgerald and stuff like that, and she had made friends with like this community of people online, and she wrote about that how it was like you know you're so close and like you have this camaraderie online, but then you go offline to like meet someone at a reading or something like that. And it's like really, it can be like restrained or awkward or you just like, don't even go. And it, it's like, cause it's too stressful to like see the person online or on off of line. And well, then you, online you like feel totally normal again.
0: Yeah. You don't want to like, it's, it's like a little scary to meet somebody who you have this really good rapport with online. Cause you're like, what if we meet in person? And we like hate each other, you know, or it's just yeah. a, <laughs> no chemistry. But I love, uh I like Kate Sambrino's work. Um, like heroines in particular, like just the level of scholarship and like rigor and like how much reading she's done and how intense she is. Like, I really have a lot of respect for the way she approaches things though. I feel a little intimidated by her. Like she seems really intense.
1: I know. I love her work. I feel like I'm getting an entire MFA's worth of education and just reading (laughs) heroines.
0: Yeah. yeah. Did you read, did you read the book of mutter? She did that one too. I read that over the holidays.
1: I haven't yet. I'm yeah. working my way through her stuff. Yeah.
0: yeah. I had her on the show like, you know, years ago. Um, I think it was in conjunction with heroines, but, uh, I'm always interested to see what she's up to. Mm-hmm. So do you have like, you have a pretty good crew of, uh, writer friends online. Like, do you feel like you have a, like I know you were doing that as a kid because that's just kind of generationally what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you've gotten older and have gotten more serious about your work, like, do you feel like you have a online community still?
1: Yeah, I definitely feel that way. Um, I have I've gotten to know a few people like um Julieta Scoria and Amanda McNeil and um Mila Jarnick. Um all of them have been like really awesome people that I email with back and forth and like I think too, now that I've had a kid I've like connected with other people that I didn't expect who also have kids, have been like really awesome to just talk to you about like mom stuff. <laughs> like how
0: how exhausted you are. <laughs> yes.
1: Like frantically trying to like write while your baby naps or just like being too tired or whatever.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get it. And it's like, uh, it's like shared, it's a shared trauma.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: are you working on anything new? Like, are you, have you been able to like work on another book? Or are you just sort of uh, doing the, the promotion of this one?
1: Um, I'm... So I did start working on a new project, um, but lately I've just been trying to like work on the promotion of this one, but I keep thinking about it and I'm like really sad. I wish I had like more time so I could just like sit down and like work on it, but it's there. I'm like working on it. So,
0: okay. So like if you, like if you could, if you had all the time in the world, are you a person who could sit down every day and write for 10 hours and and just have like a, a, a pretty good time with it? Or is getting down to uh, the work a struggle?
1: No, I totally can just like zone out and like sit at my computer and write for like several hours and just kind of get lost in it for like those big periods of time. It's really funny because I was thinking um, the other day, like when I was working in an office and I was like really unhappy and procrastinating, I would just kind of like write <laughs> instead. Um which is not a good work ethic, but, um, I was just thinking about like those times, like, Oh, if I did go to an office for eight hours a day,
0: (laughs) well, I mean, you know, and it's like, I have some questions about that because I feel like, you know, in the context of office jobs, there are certain, there are certain periods of time, whether it's a day or a week or a month where things are super, super busy. Mm -hmm. And business is really intense and there's just not a, there's not a second and you're just constantly going. Mm -hmm. But I think in every business, uh, there are periods of time where things slow down and nobody can run at full tilt, you know, except I guess there may be like a few humans are just wired for insanity. But I think people Mm -hmm. have to have some uh, periods where things are a little bit slower. And in those, in those times, like everybody in, office culture all over the world. It's like online, on social media, or Mm -hmm. working on a book, or, you know, like some, Mm -hmm. you, you just wonder, like, out of an eight hour day, how many hours are actually spent working. And I, I would be very interested. I'm sure somebody's done a study on this. I would be very interested to know what the what the ratio is.
1: I like heard that like after six hours or something, the workers productivity starts to decrease. So like you could get done in a six hour day where you can get done in an eight hour day. And I know, I'm pretty sure that like in Germany, for example, at some places you have a quota. And so like for your day, and so if you get your work done for the day, you can just go home and it's not like your pay will change because you did something in four hours today and something in six hours the next day. And I think that's something that's really interesting about like um, American corporate culture. I don't, it's probably not this way in every environment, but from the environments that I was in, it was like, if you weren't there for um, nine hours, you know, leaving for one hour for lunch, people judged you and thought that you were not productive or lazy or not working. Even if you were doing more work than other people, you were just like working like faster or more productive at it. Yeah. It's like perception is like really this huge thing in American corp- corporate culture where like if, um, yeah, like if you leave early, people are like, oh, that person's so lazy. Like they never work, even yeah. though you're probably doing more work and you're just tired and want to go home.
0: I mean, yeah. And it's just like, it's, it, you just wish, I mean, it's like, I can kind of be of two minds on it. Cause it's like, you wish that people could all just be adults. Just get your work done, do it well, have a life, go home. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying like like it's important to get your your work done. I mean, that's part of the contract. You're you're doing your work, you're getting paid. Uh, but if you're getting it done and you're and you just happen to be faster, like you shouldn't have to put in face time to mm-hmm. keep keep up appearances and make sure everybody else's emotions are there. But then if you're if you're the person running the company, like you have to have some set of like basic rules for everybody. Otherwise you could have people abusing the situation just being like, yeah, I don't know. It it gets tricky, but uh, I sort of want to move to Germany. I don't know wherever this is. I like the idea of being (laughs) able to just (laughs) get your shit down and go home.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, I understand.
0: So are you going to be in Arkansas for the foreseeable future? you think you're going to put down roots there?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm like I don't really want to move again for a while, and I love Arkansas. Like I had been considering moving to Portland, but there is like the same rental crisis situation going on there too. Um, and I just like wanted to be able to afford, like to live, you know. Um, and it's it's nice out here. Like the the nature is beautiful, the weather is beautiful, um, the people are pretty nice in Fayetteville because there's the university. Um, it's a lot more. Like open and welcoming and stuff like that. There's some funky stuff going on here. Um, there's like a little bit of li- like a lit community out here, I think. I'm like just starting to put feelers out there, so
0: you are it's the, cool. you are the lit community. You're the hub. I am. I am the <laughs> lit community. <laughs> That's cool, and it's important, you know. Like if you can, uh, I mean, there's something to be said about having a. a, a manageable cost of living i mean I, I say this as a guy who's in los angeles it's just so overwhelming it's like holy cow uh like what it takes to live in one of these big cities is it, it's out of control and there's it's
1: crazy i can't even imagine like i mean in denver it felt so hard i was worried that like if we didn't get out that we might end up like homeless or just not be able to afford like living there anymore because the cost of rent was increasing and i don't know how I don't know how anyone lives in New York or LA. It's so expensive.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you might be the sane one, and uh, you know, talk to me in ten years, like when Fayetteville's like flooded.
1: Oh yeah, I know. I'm sure it's going to happen here too.
0: But your home, but your home value will skyrocket. It'll be fantastic. You can reap the benefits.
1: Excellent.
0: Uh, well, listen, it's such a it's such a pleasure to get to talk with you, and I'm glad that we're getting a chance to. Um, to spotlight your novel in the, in the book club this month. Uh, I I congratulate you on it and uh, I wish you well, you uh, you know, in in motherhood and, and hopefully in finding some time to write.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Okay, folks, there you go. That is Elle Nash. Her novel is called Animals Eat Each Other. It's out there now from DeZank Books, official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go get your copy, Animals Eat Each Other. If you want to find Elle online, her website is yourgirll.com. She's also on Twitter. Her handle there is at saderotica. <laughs> it's a good handle. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music to this program. Thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial transitional music like the kind you're hearing right now. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support the show, it's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, too, that this show has its own app. It's a free app available wherever you get your apps. Get the Other People app. It's a good way to listen. So I just watched the Pacers uh, beat the Cleveland Cavaliers. You guys might not know this, but I'm a big basketball fan. I was raised in Indiana. You have to be. Pacers are going to beat the fucking Cavs. Fuck LeBron. We got this. We're a better team. We have unity. We function as one organism.